Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Michael Sambrooks and Steve Breaker from Sambrooks Hospitality coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by a new co-host this week. Mega Tej Paul is a contributor to Houston City Book and FoodNetwork.com. Mega, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm excellent. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Uh, maybe no bigger news this week than that Jonathan Waxman, the New York City celebrity chef known for jams, an iconic New York restaurant in the 80s, and kind of being the, the godfather of California cuisine in New York, and three of his New York chef buddies are opening, of all things, a coffee shop and an HEB. Very random. Called The Roastery. This is part of a company they own called 4J Foods. Uh, it's, an interesting, it, it's, it's an interesting thing because I, I reached out to them and they wouldn't talk to me. I reached out to HEB and HEB wouldn't talk to me. But then Scott McClellan, the president of HEB's operations, tweeted a link to the article and said something like, I wonder what's happening here. It's like, well, Scott, you would know better than we would. <laughs> it's top secret. Uh, Megan, let me just throw it to you. I mean, these uh, more and more coffee shops in Houston. HEB's obviously in a growth area. Does the prospect of a celebrity chef-affiliated all-day cafe make you more likely to go to H-E-B? Well, I'm an H-E-B shopper. Um, I have been for years. And I think it's awesome, one, because I, I do love just grabbing food while I'm shopping, but also because now and more and more people are doing, um, I think, like curbside pickup and um, delivery. So I'm interested to see if they are going to include that as an option because I always order delivery, like, like my groceries delivered. So if this menu looks really good, I would like throw in a sandwich or whatever you know they're serving. Right, and HEB owns favor, so it's very easy mm -hmm. to imagine some sort of relationship there. A collab between all these different things. Yeah, I know. My sister, one of my sisters made fun of me recently. She was like, no, nobody actually goes to the grocery store and buys their groceries. Right, I don't think anyone does that anymore. Well, but, except at the Montrose one near my house because the parking lot's always Yeah, free. that one's always packed. But maybe it's just because people can, like, walk there. You know, it's convenient for some people. But, I mean, I just don't like carrying heavy things like water bottles and things like right. that. So, I mean, I'm a brat. But I would just rather things get delivered. Right. Well, and HEB is, like, in a real growth spurt, right? They just opened the store in Bel Air, which is where we think the first location of the roastery is going to open. They have that massive store in Briar Grove at San Felipe. And Fountain View that used to have a restaurant and doesn't anymore, that could be a potential location. And, of course, they're building a store in the Heights and a store on Washington Avenue and in Meyerland. So, theoretically, all of them could also potentially have locations of the roastery, too. Right. So, it's obviously a good idea on their part because there's so much room for growth. Um, and, like you said, it's just HEB is so hot right now. Yeah, I just I just want to have the interview with someone connected to the company to be like, why Houston? Yeah. Right? Well, that's the only part that seems kind of random. Well, that's but everyone asks everyone that question when they start something here. And I think a lot of people have 
kind of a similar answer. Like Houston is growing so much. It's got such a hot food scene that's just getting better and better. Um, and I think what they're doing is cool because it's different than what everyone else is doing as far as just opening a restaurant. Right. And well, and then the other thing is we're getting, you know, the days of a coffee shop that opens and just does coffee and pastries seems to be mostly over, right? Like right. I live near Black Hole and that's what, for the most part, that's what Black Hole does and they do it very well and people love that place. Yes. But if you were opening a coffee shop now, it seems to me that you would want it to have sandwiches and salads and right. hot breakfast items and all that. And I think I might be totally wrong, but I'm one of these people. So I feel like more and more people are working outside of an office or outside of their house. And so a coffee shop becomes your space for a certain amount of time. And if you can only get coffee or a pastry, then you're going to leave at, after three or four hours and go somewhere else and go eat lunch. So the fact that they serve breakfast or lunch or snacks or whatever, it's just nice because you can stay there all day working and, you yes, know. Yes, laptop hobos. I yes, think exactly. That. Call me one. I am, <laughs> I'm one of those. Um, but, you know, they're spending money. They're buying, I mean, if they're buying food, I think it's okay to be a laptop hobo. Right. And they're going to have beer and wine. So yes. you can be a laptop hobo into the evening even. Yeah. Well, you, you close it up and then start your happy hour at 3 o'clock. That's I mean, right. I mean, 5 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> we just learned something about Megan. <laughs> All right, let me move on. Uh, the The cafe at Evelyn's Park in Bel Air has new operators. This was formerly the Ivy and James, will now be under the operation of the Adair Kitchen folks. They just as uh, they're going to call it Betsy's, Nick and Nick Adair and Katie Adair Barnhart uh, are naming this after their grandmother. Of course, they already have a restaurant named after their other grandmother, Eloise Nichols. They've had a lot of success with. Adair Kitchen and Babitas, the the juice bar in River Oaks. Um, Mega, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot to say about this, but this seems like a, a very positive development for uh, a restaurant that seems like it's in a pretty good location, but didn't quite work as the Ivy and James. Right. I think with this concept, it's already got, you know, kind of the name behind it. People seem to really love their other restaurants. Their other restaurants are very much neighborhood gems as well. So I think that's why they have kind of like that regular audience that frequents on the weekends or in the evenings for dinner with their kids and stuff like that. And so I think this one is going to do well for that reason, because maybe their regulars who live out in Bel Air will kind of be like, well, that's closer to me than going out to maybe, you know, um, what's that one they have in, um, I guess, Babitas is kind of River Oaksy or, you know. It's right. Yeah. Adair Kitchen is kind of Tanglewood. Like that's kind of where they. They yeah, got started. Different and, neighborhoods. Yeah, and they deserve a lot of credit. I mean, they are one of the very few local operators to figure out breakfast. Yeah, and they weekday do a really breakfast good job. is really tricky, right? Them and Dish Society are like the only places. Yeah, that. and they're packed. I mean, Adair Kitchen is packed on a weekday. If you ever want to have a meeting or have a really good breakfast, I mean, it is pretty solid. I mean, that'll tell you that you know the crowds show up there for that. Yeah, and they've got this kind of locally sourced uh, comfort food thing going on you know, smoothies and burgers and more substantial entrees. So, yeah, this seems like a, a very nice addition. And and I will say, this the space at Evelyn's Park is really pretty. Right. And, yeah. yeah, and again, like, this is a part of Houston, just in a kind of a micro sense, that doesn't have a lot of dining options. Right. And I think this is going to be a good one. And into the, you know, season where we're getting into nicer weather and patio, you know, time. And so I think people... If I remember correctly, I think they said that they're going to start offering like picnic type of options so you can right. sit outside. And um, I just think it's a really good time for something like that in that neighborhood. Right. And then they're going to, right. And they're busy. I mean, they're going to open a restaurant downtown sometime next year. 
Uh, it just goes to show that, you know, they, they, they're a restaurant family. They, their father uh, owned Los Tios and Skeeters, and they've kind of grown off of that. And so, you know, it's a, a local company that uh, even in the face of some pretty serious competition is, is on the upswing. Yeah, they're staying current for sure. I yeah. mean, that's, it's awesome. All right. And then, ooh, speaking of big names taking over popular spaces, Robert Del Grande, the chef owner of Cafe Annie, has created the menu for the restaurant at the Hobby Center, formerly Artista, now Diana American Grill. Uh, I, I had a I had a very pleasant conversation with Robert about this. He's uh, he kind of took his inspiration from sort of classic theater district restaurants in L.A. and New York, and it's kind of you know it's it's kind of a steakhouse. It's kind of quick service. Uh, but I, but looking over the menu and talking to him, I think I might eat there, even if I didn't have tickets to a show. Right, and I think right now or in the beginning, it's only going to be open on show nights. But I think that they're going to see that people are going to be wanting to eat there, um, just as it is, because the space is really pretty too in downtown. It's got you know really pretty views, and I think it's something that it's like a place you want to be, um, even if you're not watching a show. I just think it's a really nice space. Yeah, they're going to add weekday lunch service for the downtown business types. I mean, good idea. Yeah, you're a you're a downtown resident. Yeah, you, I am. Yeah. Do you think Do you think you would go to Diana, just to eat. I think I would, just because I love that. Like he, like he said, uh, he mentioned that it's um, very New Yorky. It's got that vibe where you kind of, you know, eat and watch a show. But even if you're not watching a show, you like kind of being around it, and you like that atmosphere. And maybe it'll inspire you to go watch something or see what's happening, you know, um, at the Hobby Center or what might be coming up. So I would definitely. I mean, I love that addition to downtown. I think my favorite anecdote is we were talking, and he's like. He's, he's training an all-new crew, right? These yeah. are people he hasn't worked with before. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, so this is how we steam a lobster. <laughs> and then we take the shells and we use that to make the sauce for the marinara that goes in the pasta. And then here's your here's your olive oil that you season the food with. And here's the olive oil that you finish with. And, the, and he said the guys were like, there's two kinds of olive oil. He's oh, like, my gosh. He's like, there's more than two, but we're going to start with these two. Yeah, start off slow, Robert. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, he also said there's going to be, or he mentioned, you know, the quality of the food is going to be really good as far as like the cheeses that they're using in the food. And um, I just think that makes such a difference. Um, the ingredients have to be quality for any dish to stand out. Right. And downtown has so many good quality steakhouse options. I mean, starting with Vic and Anthony and Pappas Brothers, that if you want a steak before a show, you don't have to go to Diana. Right. But so... But it's much more convenient, obviously, to, to only park once. So, Well, you know, you don't even have to go to downtown and eat. You can eat in Midtown or like I know B&B Butchers does this and Damien's does this, the shuttle service. Right. Um, that You can park once and then they'll just drop you to what, you know, whatever show you're watching. So they really are competing with bigger than just the downtown audience for dinner. Right. And, you know, I mean, the other thing is, you know, we're we're several months away from this, but eventually Lyric Market is going to open next door and have a food hall with a whole bunch of options and that's going to be obviously Diana is going to be more upscale, but I, I think that's still got to be kind of in the back of the mind that, that you want, you want some place that can really stand on its own. Right. And of course the Cordua has operated Artista for years. And so it had that kind of culinary legacy of having a high profile local restaurant group affiliated with it. And so if you can't, if you're not going to have the Cordua's Robert Del Grande is like a, a is a good name to, to be affiliated. With. I agree. Yeah, it was a very uh, good choice on their part. And then, <laughs> f- 
Finally, um, this is not really a food story, but it's related <laughs> to the food world. So, and it was also one of the most popular stories on Culture Map last week. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to ignore it in this context. Uh, it turns out that deli- that Ken Bridge, the owner of Delicious Concepts, that's uh, Ritual and Lola and Blackbird Azakaya and Shepherd Park Craft House and probably a couple other the places. The new one, the Ready Room in the Heights, which uh, I love. Yes, yes. So, is a is a Bitcoin investor and has been. <laughs> has been big into Bitcoin for a while now to the point that when Tillman Fertitta announced that Post Oak Motor Cars, his Rolls-Royce and Bentley dealership, would start taking Bitcoin as payments, Ken decided he wanted to be the first person to buy a Bentley with Bitcoin, which is what he did last week. I love it. I mean, <laughs> what's wrong with that? I think it's amazing. <laughs> uh, good for him. Yeah, I right. I mean, good for Ken. Yeah. All right, so here's the thing. He is starting a new point of sale system called Ruby. And Ruby is going to give you when you when you shop at when you dine at a Ruby restaurant, you get back Ruby coin as a rebate. And you can use that for purchasing items at other Ruby restaurants. So say you spend a hundred dollars at Ritual, you get ten bucks in Ruby coin, you can buy, you know, gyoza at Blackbird Izakaya. Right. Okay. Eventually, he is going to let you like trade those on an open exchange. And just like Bitcoin has gone from, you know, 10 bucks to $6,000 over the years, in theory, uh, RubyCoin could do the same thing. It probably, I mean, it probably won't, but it could. Right. It's possible. Are you, are you excited about this? Do you, are you like ready to live the crypto lifestyle when you're dining? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, well, when I'm dining, yeah, is is this like a buying decision for you? If you like, say you're trying to decide between Ritual and Houston's. Right. Right, similar restaurants, similar price points. Sure. Does the idea that, oh, I'm going to get 10 bucks in Ruby coin back make you more likely to dine there? I mean, I'm all about moving like with the wave of the future. Um, but it, I, I can see it getting maybe complicated or maybe people, I don't know. I don't know if it would steer them in one direction or the other based on, I think people just like to go eat where they want to eat. And I don't think we're there yet where this is going to influence anybody. For me, I would probably, um, yeah, I'd probably try it out. Yeah. I mean, these kind of loyalty programs, you know, I, I mean like I'm not a Starbucks guy, but that idea that if you put the money on the Starbucks card and you buy 10 coffees, you get a coffee. Yeah. I mean, I think it motivates people. Yeah, it does. And I just think it's like, if you're all about that restaurant group, like, let's say, I mean, agricultural hospitality did something like that, and you could do that with all the, I mean, people would definitely, because they really love frequenting all those restaurants. Um, but I think it's up to the, I guess, the, the restaurant group, whichever one it is, and if people really like dining at those places, um, then they're going to dine at those places. Yeah, I think, I mean, I do think Ken is onto something with this idea of a tradable currency. I mean, who, like, I don't, I don't pretend to understand cryptocurrency, you know, someone, I think I read somewhere recently, it's like, if you if you could pay your rent by letting your computer play Tetris all day, it's like, <laughs> it's like oh, okay, kind of, but uh, but still, like, it's it's this is Brave New World stuff for exactly. me. Exactly. I think it's for a lot of people, so, we'll, I mean, I guess we'll see where it goes, but I mean, I think, I think it's really cool that Ken is kind of doing something like this. Yeah, Ken is leading the way on this. Exactly. Like, He's uh, a pioneer, I guess, in this sense right and i mean he i mean i've spoken to him about this he he feels like 
that Ruby as a POS system has a lot of potential to be beyond his restaurant group, that, that he as an operator understands all of the problems associated with the other POS companies and that he feels like he has developed a solution that sort of combats that. Uh, one of the cool things that I like is that there's, a, there's an app, there's a Ruby app associated so that you can put that on your phone and you can order like from away and get it to go or you can be sitting in the dining room and order and it'll it'll hit their it'll hit their terminal and they make the food and then they bring you the food. So does that eliminate jobs though? Like does that eliminate wait staff? It might. Cuz that's yeah. cuz that I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm all about like the future and I know some people are doing stuff like this, but it's kind of like I don't know. Well, I mean, I think obviously whether or not you want wait staff versus food runners really depends on the concept, right? Like uh, the app's right. not going to tell you what wine to pair or what the what a cocktail tastes like, right? But you know, for an izakaya where it's kind of quick service, you know, you don't, I don't, I don't need someone to tell me what the beef skewer is like or or what beer to get with my gyoza. I can figure that out on my own. So right. I think in some concepts it makes more sense than others. Sure, uh, but he, I, I just feel like maybe you know ken doesn't always get the the credit he deserves for being kind of a, a smart operator and i think he's he's on right i mean his uh, concepts have been open for years and years some of them i mean i don't think people know or maybe they're not familiar that he runs pink's pizza i think he he founded pink's pizza yeah. i'm not sure whether he still operates pink's pizza and then there's i mean I, there's so many others i mean ritual i guess we talked about them ready yeah. room which is brand new i mean he's he's got these kind of older ones and then he's still opening you know, new places. Which yeah, is, and in the Heights, which has suddenly gotten very, very competitive. Right. So that's, you have, you know, there's definitely something to be said about someone like that who can compete in this market right now in those kind of locations. Right. All right. That does it for our News of the Week. We'll be right back with our Restaurants of the Week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Mega, for our Restaurants of the Week, you made one request. Do you remember? Do you remember what you told me? <laughs> I said if we were going to talk about something or a restaurant, just because we both eat out all the time, that I wanted it to be something super different and unconventional. So I I said challenge accepted, <laughs> and we went to a pop up for Chopping Block. Did I did I achieve my goal? You more than delivered. So I should explain. Chopping Block is a <laughs> Is a fast, casual, West African-inspired restaurant. It doesn't. It doesn't exist yet as a restaurant. It only exists as as a series of pop-ups. We apparently were the the ninth pop-up, and they're working on getting feedback from diners, uh, and eventually they will open a restaurant somewhere in Houston at a time that is to be determined. Uh, and let me just say. West African food is kind of the next immigrant cuisine that I think we're all going to start talking about. I, I've, I've looked this up. There's some, uh, not surprisingly, there is some dispute about the number of Nigerians that live in Houston. In the last census, it was only reported as 12,000 people of Nigerian descent. Uh, but people in the Nigerian community dispute that. It could be as many as 100,000. Wow. Maybe even a little bit more. It is. It is apparently uh, Houston is the largest 
has the largest population of West Africans in the United States. I did hear, yeah, I did hear that. And so there is not like an obvious West African restaurant in Houston right now. Uh, and that the best West African cooking is, is still done in private homes. Right. I think there are some places um, that you can go. I just think you have to know about them or know where they are. They're definitely not as obvious as like in the Heights or in Montrose. <laughs> yeah, it, it <laughs> not has yet. not come inside the loop, right? This is this is kind of uh, Southwest Houston, Bissonette, right. that kind of... And, and I admit, I know essentially nothing about this cuisine, but I feel like, and, and maybe you feel the same way, like as a as a professional diner on some level, it's time we start dialing in on this. Sure, yeah. I've had it twice now, and both times we're not... I mean, the second time was with you on Saturday, and then the first time was just kind of going out and driving far out to a restaurant called, I think it's uh, Subo Saya, or I think, well, yeah, I'll have to double check the name. It's it's out Southwest Houston. And um, it was very casual. I mean, it was more of a takeaway spot or just kind of like a locals know about it type of place. Um, so it's not as easy to, to get this kind of food for right. sure. But the the owners or the potential owners of Chop and Block have this idea that they can they can merge some of these flavors and some of these concepts with some Western style service and ingredients, and potentially like they aspire to be uh, the Nigerian local foods. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's um, that's ambitious. Right, it's super ambitious, but but very intriguing. Right, it is, and I think that if that's the way you kind of want to present it to Houstonians, it's a good way to do it because people love Whole Foods. I mean, local foods, and there's like five locations now, so I think that's all right. So let's talk about the food that we ate at the Chop and Block pop up. Right, we had three starters. We had a little like uh, a little bruschetta type appetizer. Right. We had a meat pie, and we had a steak skewer. Yes. Did you have a favorite? I generally like meat pies. I think, I mean, they just, I've liked empanadas my whole life, and that's just kind of what it reminded me of. Um, I, that was probably, I guess, my favorite. I didn't necessarily like the steak skewer because I didn't like the texture of the meat. It's very different than what you're normally used to. Um, yeah, I, so I thought the meat pie, I thought like the, the wrapping for the meat pie was a little bit thick and doughy. It was. Which I yeah. wasn't super down with. I liked the steak skewer. I thought that, um, it was a little bit chewy, but that's okay. But I and I liked the, I think it was like a ginger kind of marinade that they had for it. Right. Yeah. The sauce was really good. That's the other problem is that I just felt like it was a little dry, so the sauce kind of helped with that. The flavors of the sauce were really good. Right. Uh, and then we had, I'm not even sure. So it we we had the entree, which was this. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this. Jalof? Jalof? Jalof rice. Jalof rice. This uh, kind of smoked rice dish uh, with chicken and plantains. And then they had a little fun. They had a little, they threw a little Western touch in. They threw in some cauliflower and some Brussels sprouts, which is not part of the cuisine, the cuisine traditionally, but that's the fusion element. That's where they're trying to capture, uh, they're, they're trying to capture ingredients that are more familiar to a Western audience. Right. So it was like presented in a big bowl. Yeah, it was like was a big bowl together. of West African. They, they described it as West African jambalaya. Yeah. What did you think? Um, so I thought it was, it looked great and it presented really well. And they, um, it was just, it was very, like you said, the, the meat was smoked. It was very smoky. And I don't know, I guess I'm just not 
as familiar with Nigerian food um, to know this, but it was very smoky. So I guess if you really like smoked meats or that kind of flavor, then you would love this. Right. I mean, I'm a big barbecue eater. I like smoke flavor. I think the problem is that there's that like there's that real fine line between smoke and then that kind of ashy creosote flavor. Right. And some of my bites were smoky and delicious, and some of my bites were ashy and less delicious. Right. No, and, I t- totally agree with you. And so that's like one of those. So that's one of those like this is what happens when you're cooking at a pop up in an apartment kitchen or prepping somewhere and then taking it taking it somewhere else to serve. Right. I don't think it would be like that in the restaurant environment, but if you're judging the food on the plate that we were served, it's like, you know, you can see that there's some consistency. There's some, some elements of consistency of execution. That's why they're doing these, right. Is to get this kind of feedback from diners. Like this was good, but this other thing wasn't good. Right. And I thought their presentation was really well. And I think that they have a good vision. Um, But yeah, they're definitely maybe a ways away from opening a restaurant until they get these certain details figured out. Yeah. But I will say, there's, there's an, they, they are obviously very excited to be presenting this food to people. There was a lot of really warm hospitality in the way the food was presented. I have been to pop-ups where it takes a really long time for the food to come out. And it's like very disrespectful of the paying customer's time. This was not like that. It moved, it moved quickly. The dishes were served quickly. Right. They, uh, they definitely... Um had that part down as far as the music. They had music playing. They had everyone dining at a communal table. Um, you could see the dishes being plated, which was really nice. Um, it, yeah, in that part, I felt like they were spot on. Um, as far as running a restaurant, I think that they would do that part fine with welcoming people in. All right, so would you recommend, if a friend asked you, what was the deal with Chopping Block, should I try it? Would you recommend that they? I say yes, definitely try it. I mean, for sure try it because it's a new cuisine, especially if you've never tried it before. Um, I, I just think that it just needs to be fine-tuned a little bit more. Yeah, and so I would say, right, $30 a person uh, for the pop-up. And and they did something that I thought uh, was very interesting. They gave you, you, you pay in advance, and then they give you an envelope with the money, and you can decide how much of your $30 they've earned. Right. Now, I, I gave them the whole $30, but I definitely saw people like rifling through and taking out five bucks, 10 bucks. Right. You know. And I don't know how much of that was, has anything to do with like a gratuity type of thing or how they felt about the food. I just think maybe people thought, okay, well, I'm going to take back half or give half. You know, right. I don't know. Who knows what the reason is behind that. But I've, I've never seen that before to pop up. So, so props to Chop and Block for, for letting people decide. Yes. What they what they want to pay? Yeah, no, I love that they were so open to people's honesty. Um, they literally made us um, do like swear. Yeah, we at swore the begin- an oath at the beginning of dinner. <laughs> at the beginning that we would be honest uh, throughout. So that really reminded Eric and I both to you know I guess make sure we were honest, which you have no problem with. Yeah, <laughs> I, you're, I you're, you 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 professionally do. are nice to people. I'm, I try. I, I try. Not but always. but hopefully we're. I, I I feel like we're fulfilling the honesty component of our promise uh, here on the podcast right now. Yeah. Uh, And then just briefly, I want to talk about Buff Burger, uh, which just rolled out breakfast. Uh, We both ate breakfast there this morning, in fact. Uh, Mega, just how was your breakfast? It was good. It was uh, heavier than I normally eat for breakfast. I'm usually a coffee person and that's it but um i love it they have so many options they had like a fried chicken sandwich on biscuit 
biscuits, biscuit buns. And then they had um, the salmon was, I'm like, a, if I'm going to eat breakfast or brunch at a restaurant, I'll order, you know, a salmon dish. And um, the sandwiches were like really nicely constructed in the sense that they weren't as messy as sometimes breakfast sandwiches can get with the eggs running out and things falling out. Um, and then my favorite was the little hash brown tater tots. Did you get those? I did. I yeah. did. Those hash brown tater tots are very good. Yeah. Uh, they're smoking the salmon in-house themselves, which yes. I, th- I think is really admirable. And they have also started baking their own buns, which I think is very cool. Yeah, and that makes so much difference in a sandwich or a burger, um, you know, what the bun tastes like and what it looks like and how it feels and the texture. Yeah, Buff Burger has been, uh, they have their original location on I-10 in Spring Branch and their second location in Montrose, it's close to where I live. Third location coming to Westheimer outside the Beltway uh, later this fall. They're going to have breakfasted, all three of them. I, I, I'm with you. I really enjoyed it. I thought the quality of the salmon was really good. They're doing like a, they're doing it with like a, uh, like a cream cheese chevre kind of mm-hmm. mixed spread on top of it. And then, you know, they, there's a sous vide pork belly sandwich with an egg on it that was good. There's a breakfast burger with uh, bacon, egg, and cheese that I, I really enjoyed. So, yeah, I think they're really onto something. They also have the, um, jal- the house-made jalapeno ketchup. Which is just an awesome addition to any, really, any of the sandwiches. Maybe not the salmon, but the other ones. Yeah, don't squirt this. Don't don't squirt ketchup on your sandwich. <laughs> Please don't. But yeah, no, it was pretty good. Yeah, and you know, there's uh, everybody always has mixed feelings about house-made ketchups, but I think uh, Buff Burger has a good one. I agree. All right. Well, Mega, that does it for the restaurants of the week. Uh, tell people where they can follow you, follow all your work. So I have an um, Instagram food blog called Hot Pink Houston. So you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and that's at Hot Pink Houston. And um, I write for Houston City Book Magazine, so you can always find my articles in there, in the print issue and online. And then you can read some of my stuff um, on foodnetwork.com under the Houston local page. Very good. And then I will be right back with Michael Sambrooks and Steve Bricker. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? fall is here school has started cooler temperatures are coming even if we don't know exactly when which means it's a great time to go back to eighth wonder brewery uh one of my favorite local breweries i love visiting the brewery in east downtown it's just they always have something fun going on there's always the Eatsy boys food truck serving food and of course there's eighth wonders beers which are easy drinking and always very flavorful they've been working through their series of collaborations with local Houston hip-hop artists. The brewery always has something really special on tap. And the Wonder World, the backyard, is always a great place to gather with friends, uh, especially if you're in the middle of a, a bar crawl through the neighborhood. You can hit a couple spots, but always make sure you stop at 8th Wonder. So thank you to 8th Wonder for sponsoring the show, and here's our guest of the week. I'm joined this week by Michael Sambrooks, the owner of Sandbrook's Hospitality, and Steve Breaker, the Director of Operations. It's the company behind The Pit Room and very recently Lee's Fried Chicken and Donuts, Pie Pizza, and Starfish. Michael, let me start with you. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. Steve, how are you? Pleasure. I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, Michael, I always like to start at the beginning with these interviews, so let me just let me just ask you. I mean, you're a you're a you're a native Houstonian, right? You're a, a Sugarland right. guy. Born and raised, yeah. How did you get started in the restaurant business? 
Uh, it was actually my first job. When I was 18, I started waiting tables at Papado on Richmond there. And then obviously went off to college and took a, took a break from the industry. And then decided I want to get back into it. And then I came back to go to U of H and did the uh, hotel restaurant management school thing for a little while. And then I had a little, a few wait, waiting table jobs, nothing big, but I guess the first big job I had was waiting tables at Stella Sola for uh, Bill Floyd and Brian Caswell when that opened up and then kind of worked my way into a management position over at Reef. That's where I met Steve. So Steve was kind of my mentor over there at Reef for a while. So I think I spent three or four years with that company and then moved on to a couple of different various things. Yeah. Cause I think when you were working on opening the pit room, you had been with Good Company for a little while. Correct. Yeah, I was. I spent a couple of years at Good Company before we opened the pit room. Um, so kind of towards the tail end there, I was trying to work on the pit room a little bit. Uh, but that's kind of where I got the itch to do the barbecue thing. Uh, I fell in love with the operation with the Good Company side, the quick serve restaurant style, and you know, kind of the operation of it all. Just wanted to do my own thing. Wanted to do my own food with the concept, and uh, that's what we went out and tried to do. Right. And then, Steve, I think uh, by reputation, I know you as the general manager at Reef, but how did you get started in the restaurant business? Uh, well, I actually got started in the restaurant business because I was getting a degree in theater at SMU. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, once you move into acting, you pretty much uh, it's kind of a given that you're going to move into the restaurant industry, the flexible hours and such. Uh, but uh, kind of got the itch and uh, decided I was going to actually just steer my way into uh, restaurant management. And, uh, and, you know, it kind of went from there. So, you know, I guess about 30 years in the industry in total, uh, starting out in, uh, I guess my first restaurant job was out in Chicago and then, uh, you know, moved back to, uh, or moved out to Los Angeles and worked uh, for California pizza kitchen for about seven years and then, uh, moved back to Texas and picked it up from there. And then, Michael, how did you how did you approach Steve about coming on board now that you're kind of expanding the company? So Steve and I have been friends since we since we left since I left Reef. So we kept in touch. So I always knew you know kind of where he was, what he was doing, uh, and it just kind of fell into good timing because he was kind of available at the time when all this was going down. And I'd reached out to him and said, "Hey, there might be an opportunity here. Would you you know?" have the opportunity to help me out and he said yeah i'd love to and so we kind of started talking about it there and you know that was kind of a big piece for us that kind of gave us a lot of confidence moving into uh making this deal for these new restaurants so uh it was a good get for us um but yeah we've been in touch since we left we've been friends for a while now yeah i mean i know i mean obviously in the last five years or so uh you know the quality of barbecue in houston has gone up yeah. exponentially you don't you know the old days of like have to get in the car and drive to Lockhart or Taylor or whatever to have great barbecue. That that's not really a thing anymore. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you How did you decide that that's what you wanted to do with the pit room? Because it it does seem like looking back on it, it's it seems like a little bit unlikely that oh we're gonna we're gonna take this porn shop and turn it into a barbecue <laughs> joint and we're gonna hit the Texas Monthly Top Fifty like a year after opening. Well, I know, and we didn't expect that 
either. But, um, you know, at, at the time when we opened the pit room, like you said, there wasn't really anything centrally located. And, you know, we were into barbecue, my brother and I, we're all, we've always been into barbecue. We were always driving out to Corkscrew or going out to Lockhart or going out to go to Louis Mueller's. And we thought, man, if we could just open something inside the loop in kind of a prime location, uh, it would work great. And uh, so, you know, for a year, we were just looking for locations. And obviously, it wasn't an ideal spot. We essentially had to tear down that whole building and rebuild it in place. It was a nightmare. It took us, you know, well, almost a year to get that building ready to be opening, which was kind of a blessing because it gave Bram and I the ability to test kitchen everything over and over and over and over again in a commissary kitchen. We were doing pop-ups here and there, but uh, that kind of gave us the ability to kind of perfect all of our recipes. So when we did kind of open up, we were ready to go. Uh, and we knew what we wanted to do. We wanted to have that high-quality barbecue experience inside the loop. We didn't want to run out of food. We wanted to keep that good company model of that you're open for lunch, you're open for dinner seven days a week, and we do everything we can to not run out of food, you know, and have the same experience throughout the day, seven days a week. And uh, that was kind of our goal, and I think we've come pretty close to that, and it seemed to work out so far. Yeah, I mean, I think it's impressive that you're doing that and still using offset smokers because typically <laughs> – Right, the restaurants that cook in that traditional way are the places that, you know, they're open for they're open for lunch and maybe they stay open in the afternoon, but they they never have food for dinner. No. And it made it really difficult. So it took us a year and a half to find a pit crew that could work three pit shifts a day. So we need about five guys because the pits go 24 hours a day. We have to have two separate loads for, for lunch and dinner. Uh, and so it's really hard to fill that reliable spot to come in at 10 p.m. and work till 7 or 8 a.m. Uh, we finally found those guys uh, that are kind of real passionate about it. Uh, and that was kind of the learning curve for us because there's always going to be consistency issues in barbecue just because of the style of the cooking. Uh, but it's really comes down to who you have working those pits. And it, we've, we've really worked through a lot of things to get that straightened out. Well, and then the other thing is you guys have a Tex-Mex component with the tacos and the queso and the chicharrones that is at least unique in Houston as far as I know. Sure, yeah. That was kind of the, the angle that we wanted to go with on the sides because nobody was doing it. So, uh, I mean, of course, it's in Houston. Everybody loves Tex-Mex. You throw barbecue on a taco. I mean, that should be a winner for for a lot of people, and uh, it kind of was. So that was a pretty, pretty – it seemed like a simple approach to us. Yeah, but it's – I mean – we, we can say this has wildly exceeded your expectations. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, we knew that if we had decent food and a good location, we could be mildly successful. Um, but, I mean, I, I think that we worked really, really hard to get it to where it was right now. Uh, and then, Steve, obviously Michael brought you on. What's your, uh, what do you see kind of as, as your role for the company as you kind of go forward? Well, <clears throat> moving forward, you know, it's uh, working with Michael – I know how he operates the pit room, and I know what his philosophies are in general. And uh, one thing that really impresses me about about the way he operates is that, you know, good enough is not good enough. I mean, it's got to be exceptional. And uh, he doesn't mind incurring, like, extra cost as long as he's putting out the absolute best product he can possibly get. And that goes from sourcing to the, uh, you know, the preparation, all the care that goes into making things from scratch, you know, his uh, proprietary brines and the amount of time that he does things. You know, it was uh, it's that kind of quality, um, you know, that really draws me to how he operates. And, um, 
And so my job is really going to be making sure that that kind of standard is upheld in all of the restaurants. You know, I was lucky enough to uh, spend a good amount of time at Reef, uh, spend a couple of years at Uchi. And so, uh, you know, obviously, you know, quality is the standard. And uh, making sure that that uh, culture carries over to the service, that the staff is well-versed in what they're doing. Uh, they're not, uh, you know, pushy or righteous necessarily about what they're doing, but ambassadors to the quality of, uh, you know, what's in front of them and what they're putting in front of the guest to start to paint a picture of what it is what the expectations are going to be. And so, um, you know, I'm basically here to, to, to make sure that, again, those standards are upheld, that everybody's trained properly, that we're executing properly. And again, you know, just making sure that nothing comes out that's not absolutely top notch. So, Michael, how did this opportunity come about to acquire the Cherry Pie Restaurants? Uh, basically guys, we shared the marketing, uh, same marketing people. And so Lisa Goshman did the marketing for cherry pie and Gooch. I brought her on to do the marketing for the pit room and she's done an amazing job. She's really helped out a lot with that. She's also sitting in the room. So it behooves <laughs> you to say that. <laughs> and, uh, so I was, um, I was looking for a space because I had a, I had an idea of a project I wanted to do. So I was, I was looking, 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 couldn't find anything that was, you know, Cheap enough, already kind of halfway built out. And so I asked Lisa to go out and find something because she knows everybody in the city and the restaurant business. And that's what she came back to me with. And then we started kind of just really thinking through the opportunity. At first, it seemed like, oh, there's some things we want here, but a lot of things we don't. And um, so we just kind of really started thinking it through and we kind of ended up on the deal that we ended up with. Um, so that's kind of how it all came about. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was, you know, from my side of things, it was an interesting process because I was hearing all these wild rumors. You, you were not the only restaurant group that was interested in these assets. Right. A lot of back and forth about who was or who wasn't. Uh, so, you know, I guess when it was finally announced, it was, it was, it's exciting because I don't think, I think from the outside, I, I don't think people necessarily would have associated you with, you know, making a big move, or maybe they would have thought you'd open a second pit room. Sure. And that's kind of the, that was kind of what was exciting about this opportunity is guys like me that are, you know, kind of first time restaurant owners, new in the restaurant, don't get an opportunity to kind of bid on these fully built out second generation spaces that are pretty much ready to go. It's always, you know, the, the big names that kind of snatch them up because, you know, they're in the loop and they take them before they even go on the market. So it was really exciting to get the opportunity to even bid on this thing. And there was a few different groups that were bidding on it. Uh, and it was, it just, we got, we got, we got lucky with the opportunity and the timing of everything. And uh, I'm hoping to make it something really great. So let's kind of go through, I mean, I, I know that you're still kind of getting your hands around this, but I'm sure you have some ideas about the things you'd like to do. We do. We do. I mean, so, you know, at first we kind of want to get, you know, intimate operational knowledge of all the businesses as they are right now. We know what we want them to be. Um, so we'll just start with chicken and donuts. Um, love that concept. I think the donut recipes are great. I think that it's a really interesting, fun concept. It's got good revenue. We're pretty much going to tweak a few minor things on the chicken recipes um, and then we're just going to kind of let that one go. Um, yeah, as long as you don't change the Mexican chocolate donut, the donuts still, are and the, the apple fritter, we can still be friends. I mean, that was <laughs> that was we were the one we we're most excited about is the opportunity that those donuts are going to give us. I mean, if we can grow on the quality of donuts that, that thing's producing, and 
potentially down the line get a facility to produce those in mass it could be a really really big opportunity for us um and we love that concept but right now it's it's good it's on its own it's on, the people there are great really really hardworking team uh so we're going to kind of leave that as kind of our third project to get to um are you gonna are you gonna buy a, a new neon sign of yourself no no no, <laughs> no. we're gonna take that one down there's a few people that want it um and so we're working on that and then we're gonna put probably a neon chicken and donut up there that, something, that something probably simple. makes more sense yes. yeah something very simple but be surprised i don't know why so many people wanted that and i didn't think it had any value but a lot of people want to buy it from me so we're probably gonna get rid of it um and then the pizza place, I uh, actually really loved the pizza before. I think it was a little, um, needed to be a little more approachable. It didn't really have as wide of an appeal as it needed to. So we're going to kind of. Are, are, s- are you telling me that blackberries and arugula is not like a top selling pizza? <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> what I'm getting at there. I, although I think, you I know, mean, for me. I love that pizza, but I For understand. me, I think it's fantastic. And that's what I'm saying. I think it was fantastic. But um, we're going we're gonna to really work on. We're going to have some of that. I mean, obviously, we're going to do some of that. We're going to have specialty pizzas, but we're going to also going to have the traditional stuff. We're going, to, we're going to add some items that's going to make it more of an overall full dining experience. We're going to add five or six different Italian sandwiches. We're going to have wings that we're going to do interesting uh, flavors of the week and you know four different standard flavors. A lot of house condiments on the table. We're going to do a salad bar with house pickles and a lot of stuff like that so that people can come in at lunch and grab side salad and a slice of pizza if they want or a sandwich. Um, And then we want to try and do a Chicago-style deep dish pizza. I love it. Um, We've had trouble with the uh, testing of it so far. It's not easy to do. Uh, So it might take a while to kind of get that on the menu. But if we can get it right, I think that would just be something really interesting to add to, you know, the overall concept that we're doing there. Right. And you you sold briskets to another pizza joint for a little while back in the day. Right. And so, you know, I mean, brisket on a pizza is just kind of a no brainer. Oh, brisket on a pizza. We're going to take our house cured sausages. We're going to maybe dry cure them, slice them, and then, uh, you know, do a, a barbecue sausage pizza. You know, we talked about doing a pulled pork and brisket pizza. All that kind of stuff. I mean, all those little elements of barbecue are going to come into play at each of the concepts if we can if we can pull it off. It's not going to be in your face, you know. It might be more subtle, especially at the seafood place. Um, but we're going to definitely have some of that in all the concepts. Yeah, and then so let's talk about the seafood place because I, I think of the three of them, just as a diner, I think that was the the one I liked the best. Okay, and it was the you know at least in its original incarnation was. You know, I just I always felt like I had a lot of good choices on the menu. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you what are you thinking for the seafood restaurant? So my thoughts is, you know, I don't have a problem with the uh, the former concept as it was, uh, you know, per se. But you know, when we look at it, Steve's got you know eight, nine, twelve years of experience in seafood. Uh, we want to kind of make that uh, kind of a flagship high end restaurant for our group that is going to express our personalities our style of food, the things that we want to see on a high-end seafood menu. Uh, So it's probably going to be a total redo. Nothing wrong with what was there before, but we want to show what we would like to see in that style of concept. And we've got a lot of ideas on how that's going to look. Um, You know, it's going to be... Instead of kind of the the bigger plates and, you know, a lot of stuff, it's probably going to be more simple, kind of elegant plates with a few components, Um, you know, stuff like that. Uh, we do want to do kind of like a, 
a preserved, cured, and smoked section where you do kind of the charcuterie style, but with smoked and cured fish. They kind of play with the pit room, that kind of stuff. Um, we might do a little bit of minor construction to the interior, but nothing major. It's not going to be a wholesale change. Um, you know, team so far has been great helping us out with the transition. So, you know, we really look forward to working with them and seeing what they can bring to the table with the, the new concept. Yeah. I mean, Steve, you know, we, we've had last year, there were a couple of very high profile closings of seafood restaurants with Holly's and with, uh, salt air. You've worked at one of the very few, Seafood restaurants, it was like a huge success, both uh, critically and commercially. What, what is it you think that, that makes a seafood restaurant in Houston successful? Oh, um, you know, I think respect for the product. You know, if that's one thing uh, I really picked up from working with uh, Brian Caswell, Bill Floyd, is that, uh, you know, absolutely bringing in the best product you could possibly get your hands on and then treating it with respect. Um, you know, a lot of thought would go into, you know, how to embellish the dish without, uh, clouding it's, you know, what really made it wonderful in the first place. So, you know, really getting an appreciation for, you know, it's still considered like bycatch, you know, your, your triple tails and trigger and things like this. They're really, really wonderful fish that a lot of people just didn't have a lot of exposure to. Um, so, you know, I really think it's like, uh, you know, the success of reef again was, you know, incumbent upon the the quality of the product that was brought in and the care and respect for the product as we're serving it. So, uh, you know, I think that's got a lot to do with it. Yeah. And you're working with uh, a culinary team that was in place that, that kind of knew the old ways. I mean, what are you, what are you finding in working with them? I mean, do you, are they receptive to these ideas? Are they, how's that going? Uh, receptive. I think, uh, when we first moved in, um, to the seafood place, what we kind of noticed was there was, you know, there had been a gap in some upper management. So they'd kind of been left in limbo. So they were kind of running as a business as usual. What we saw was there was some frustration with, you know, some of what they were doing, but didn't really feel empowered to do anything to change it or improve it. So, uh, you know, that's what we've really been doing is trying to like create the culture where it's like, you know, if you're not proud of it, let's not do it. Uh, I would rather take something completely off the menu and run with five items on it than to, you know, try to fill out a menu with things that you're just completely unexcited or unenthused or, you know, just, you know, you don't have any respect for. So, uh, that has really been the biggest change. And, uh, and so I think they're receptive to the change. Certainly the, uh, the management front of house staff, they're very excited. Uh, you know, they, they see the change as a very positive thing so far. So, Michael, what's the timeline for some of these changes? Or <clears throat> It's a tough one. Um, you're probably going to start seeing just minor menu changes, uh, seafood here and there. Our, our original plan is that we wanted to do some minor redesign of the building and then kind of work on the menu development and then just kind of have a re-grand opening and then show everything all at once. I'm not sure what, if that's going to work because you can never tell the timeline on the construction stuff. So, um, you know, to be determined on that one. Uh, I don't have a solid answer for that. Uh, and I do have to ask you about the one thing at the pizza place everybody wants to know is, are you keeping the skateboards? I am keeping the skateboards. Okay, because yeah. there were like a million people that were ready to, to bid on them. For I you. know, I know. I think they're pretty cool. I, I did say uh, Anthony could have two of them. So I gave him <laughs> two of them, but I wanted, I, I kept uh, most of them. I think they're pretty cool. Yeah. 
Yeah. You no, know, no, I, I, I think they're very cool. I was, I was ready to, you know. Yeah, the interior design of that pizza place is awesome. I mean, we're really not going to do anything. Uh, we're going to change some uh, layout of the kitchen just to to go with our menu. But the 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 front of the house, every, everything's so we're going to keep. Yeah, and I, I guess expanding the delivery component would be the other thing, or or maybe working with <clears throat> some of these delivery services to kind of expand your reach. So we're going to think about the delivery service, but we really want to do it in house. Um, you know. Uh, a long-term goal is we want to offer delivery from, you know, 11 till 10 or 11 on the weekdays at night, and then also go to maybe 2 or 3, 3 a.m. on the weekends. Uh, we want to have somebody in-house that's ready to deliver a pizza any time of day you call us if we're operational. Uh, that was a, that's going to be a big focus on us is fixing the delivery thing. Uh, we're going to do a big marketing push on that as soon as we can, uh, as soon as we're ready to go on it and uh we also are changing the liquor license from a full liquor license to just a package license beer and wine and so we're going to offer uh kind of mixed six packs and bottles of wine for delivery as well and so we're going to kind of build a to-go menu that's going to be in that format and we're going to really try and hit the uh excuse me the the residents in the area yeah it turns out that people like that people like to drink beer and wine with pizza they don't really care about cocktails it, yeah, it's not worth the extra extra taxes you have to pay, and then it also gives us the flexibility of to to sell you know beer and wine to go. So it, it seems like a no brainer for a business that's you know what we see is something that should be a majority of the business you should do in your to go business. So I think it's going to play really well with that. Uh, and then so I I I feel like I wouldn't be uh, doing my job if I didn't ask you, you. You said that you were originally looking for a space for another concept. Um, what, what was the concept? Well, well, <laughs> uh, well, I wanted to do sandwiches, but I'm, I'm going to do some of that at the pizza place. Okay. So, yeah. So it would have been something different, but that, that we might come to, but that's going to be years or so down the line. Well, yeah. Cause the Micklewaith guys are doing like a deli thing, right? Like you could do like a, a pit room deli thing with pastrami and well it's yeah because it's really close to what you're doing at barbecue anyways but instead of you know everything going on the smoker you're curing all your meats in house and roasting them smoking some of them all that kind of stuff and then slicing them for sandwiches it would just be a a similar fit and style of service and style of restaurant that is like the ultimate gripe from people who move here from either of the other coasts is that there are no good sandwiches in this town and my my argument to them that they're that you my argument to them is you should embrace what we're good at, which is like tacos and burgers. But there are just some people who want like crazy sandwiches. I, I love sandwiches. Who doesn't? I mean, yeah, <laughs> eat them four times a week for, for lunch. So yeah. <laughs> so that so that's sort of TBA. That yeah, that's uh, that's not anytime soon. Yeah, you've got plenty on your plate. Got a lot to work through right now. So all that'll just be you know just ideas, and we all have ideas in this business. So yeah. Yeah, I know. Grant Cooper likes to tell me that he's got like five things that are seventy five percent at any given time and then when he finds a space and the money and you know that any one of them could go to a hundred like in three months if if the opportunity was right exactly exactly that's that's pretty much because it all depends on the real estate the real estate's so tough so uh well then michael i know you're you're a fan of the show you were one of the i will say uh and i very much appreciate it you were one of the first restaurateurs to tell me that you listened to the show oh yeah so then (laughs) so then you know how this is going to end Yes, I forget the exact format. But I, I let's call it. Away. I call it the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Okay, uh, Steve, I'm going to start with you. First question: uh, What is your favorite ingredient? My favorite ingredient. 
nice one. Um, I'm going to say um, uni. Great answer. Michael, how about you? Uh, immediately off the top of my head, I went bacon. Bacon's a good answer. <laughs> uh, Michael, who's the, band you, who's the first band you ever saw in concert? Oh, gosh. If I, I mean, just if, I, I don't really remember, but I'm, I want to say Dave Matthews Band. I don't know if that's correct or not. <laughs> Steve, how about you? It wasn't a band, but I think I was like eight years old and I saw Ann Murray at the rodeo. <laughs> very nice. That's a good. That's a very good Houston answer. Uh, Steve, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Uh, Earl Campbell. Michael, how about you? JJ Watt is. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? And you can't say, you can't say chicken and donuts, but it, it's got to come from a restaurant with a drive-through. Okay. Ooh. Steve, how about you? Uh Guilty pleasure, tacos from Taco Bell. <laughs> so not only taco for me, you go, you get the chili cheese burrito from Taco Bell, and you add Fritos, and you get a Frito burrito. That's my guilty pleasure. <laughs> I think we just learned something. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's off the menu. And then, and then finally, uh, other than the pit room, where's your favorite place to get a taco? Uh, taco Rio Loreto on Washington. Steve? Oh man, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much my go-to as well. I mean, for breakfast, the uh, sausage taco they've got is killer. Uh, taco Deli too, though. Yeah, yeah Taco, taco Deli is awesome. Yeah. Uh, give us the websites and how to follow you and and all that stuff. Um, the pitroombarbecue dot com. Uh, we're working on the other websites now. I don't really know them off the top of my head, but you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, if you go to the pit room on those, we'll probably link to the other restaurants very soon. Well, very good. And you can follow me on Twitter at e sandler, on Instagram at eric sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.